0: You are listening to National Security Law
1: Today. Last week, we talked to Cameron Hudson of the Atlantic Institute about the burgeoning conflict in Ethiopia and fears of genocide. We noted that 750,000 Ethiopians live on the East Coast between Baltimore and Richmond, and they have swayed a gubernatorial election. Their importance to U.S. national security is unquestionable. Listen to part two of our podcast with Cameron Hudson and a full explainer on how the conflict in Ethiopia will impact the United States.
0: Well, that really tees up my next question, which is just to kind of ask spot on about the risk of genocide and mass violence against civilians, especially with these entrants that you've described that help the current leadership in Ethiopia really resist the United States' traditional methods of soft power and encouraging structures that will be resistant to mass violence, such as strengthening civil society and you know, doing military professionalization training. What are some of the things that may be effective, given the conditions on the ground, um, to protect civilians and to prevent this from becoming even more horrific than we've already heard reports about?
2: Yeah, well, listen, I think first, we can't underestimate the threat of mass atrocities and genocide uh, for a number of reasons. One, already the, the history of this conflict is replete with Human rights abuses, with massacres of civilian populations, with the explicit targeting of civilian populations and civilian infrastructure. You know, Secretary Blinken referred to to the conflict as ethnic cleansing in testimony that he gave to the Senate uh, this past spring. I think that is the the least of it, quite frankly. And just in the last few months and weeks, even we've seen you know some of the kind of telltale warning signs of you know, genocidal preparation, let's call it. You know, so first is then the, the sort of dehumanizing hate speech, calling the Tigrayans cancers, weeds that need to be removed. This is not just coming from fiery uh, preachers and things. This is coming from the, the, the mouth of the prime minister himself. So, you know, very senior political authorities uh, delivering these kinds of hateful and, and dehumanizing speeches. Secondly, we've now seen the targeting based on ethnicity of Tigrayans. So in the capital of Addis Ababa, we've seen in recent weeks roundups, very extensive roundups of Tigrayans being put into internment camps, which human rights observers are not able to access right now. Uh, as many to, as 20 to 30,000 Tigrayans have been rounded up in, in recent weeks, which we just don't have good numbers on or a good sense of the conditions in which they're being held. We're hearing increasingly about local level vigilante groups which have been formed by local authorities, government authorities to patrol the streets looking for Tigrayans. Ethnicity is printed on your ID card in Ethiopia. And so it's you know been been discussed that people have been targeted for speaking Tigrayan language or having Tigrayan language books with them, prominent Tigrayans who have occupied senior government positions, positions at the United Nations, positions at international organizations have been fired. The head of the World Health Organization, Dr. Tedros is a Tigrayan. He was the health minister of Ethiopia under Melazanawi. His term as head of the World Health Organization came up for renewal this past year, and he was not supported by his own government of Ethiopia because he is a Tigrayan. And so he was nominated by European countries to serve in that role, not by his own country. And again, when he was appointed to that position five years ago, it was a massive celebration for all of Africa. It was the you know one of the one of the first UN agencies to be headed by by an African. And here we are now this year, and he's Essentially, been disowned by his government. So, so many of these signs have, you know, amounted to a sense of collective punishment, not just against the political leadership of the Tigray region, but really the the population more broadly. So, I think there's real concern that you could continue to see this trend emerge where. Uh, people are targeted based upon their ethnicity, that they have been programmed into thinking that it's okay. There's been no justice or accountability for any of the transgressions that we have seen. So a kind of inculcation of the population that these are just the kinds of crimes that are associated with conflict. And so there's a certain banality that has that has emerged around some of this. And again, I think I think much of that has been designed by the government itself and its leaders. Unfortunately, right now, I think that the United States has limited ability at this moment to affect the trajectory of of violence. The United States has clearly decided that it is choosing a kind of a diplomatic exclusive approach. So again, we have seen very high level interactions and interventions by the president, by the secretary of state, by our our special envoy for the Horn of Africa, a lot of shuttle diplomacy and engagement with regional actors in the African Union, in Kenya, and further afield, trying to use African leverage to to bring about a change in approach from the Abiy government. Uh, That has not been successful. Partly, uh, I think we have lacked a kind of punitive counterbalance to this diplomacy. The idea of, you know, Uh, Walking softly and carrying a big stick has not, uh, you know, we've not had the big stick. We've threatened it. In September of this year, the Biden administration rolled out a new executive order sanctions program targeting Ethiopian, Eritrean, Amharan, and Tigrayan officials for crimes that were being committed in the course of this conflict. But it was what the Treasury Department called an empty EO, which means there were no designated entities under that EO. So it was a pretty theatrical event, but did not really pack the punch. I think that is is needed to get the attention of the the Ethiopians. They've been suspended from the AGOA program, which is the Africa Growth and Opportunity Act. It's the sort of signature uh, trade preference program of the United States government. Um, They were suspended last month on the grounds of human rights uh, concerns. Again, though, that was mandated by Congress uh, and not by the administration. And so we really haven't seen the Biden team back up their diplomacy with any kind of set of consequences. And I think one of the other things that has been talked about, but we've not seen, you know, bear any fruit or even come to light is this idea of a of a sort of a genocide determination, really looking at the human rights conditions on the ground, as we have done in conflicts in in Myanmar, for example, in Darfur, with the Yazidis previously. So there's a, a great deal, sadly, of precedent around how we conduct these investigations into mass atrocities and genocide crimes. The administration has been pursuing that investigation since the spring and has not released yet its findings. And I think it is trying to figure out how to release those findings in a way that recognizes that while the preponderance of crimes and some of the worst crimes being committed are likely happening from the Ethiopian military, the Amhara state militias, and the Eritrean military, which has come in on the side of the Ethiopians, that the Tigrayans are also responsible for their fair share of human rights abuses and, and, and crimes. And so how to balance that message of holding people accountable, but holding them perhaps uh, accountable in different ways at different levels, I think is something that the administration is is struggling with. So all of that to say, there are tools out there in the U.S. arsenal to address this more profoundly, but we have chosen to kind of keep them off the table for the time being in favor of a diplomatic approach, which I think Washington has really been hindered in, in pursuing, given what the government in Ethiopia thinks is our bias towards the Tigrayan cause, that we were such close allies of Melis for so long that how can we be impartial now, and that our policy is inherently biased towards the Tigrayans. So we've been really limited in, in what our diplomacy can do on the ground in the past year or so. Uh,
1: yeah. And that's interesting what you say about the fact that Eritrea has come in in support of the Ethiopian government because uh, Tigray ethnic region spans into Eritrea, correct?
2: Correct. Yes. So the Eritreans are ethnic Tigrayans and they, they share a common border and have since uh, Eritrea's independence.
1: And it's also interesting that we're reaching out right now to Kenya, which as a practical matter has, I think, the largest Somali diaspora, including representatives from basically all four of the major clans and entire neighborhoods in the larger cities, including Nairobi's Eastleigh, which are overwhelmingly Somalis, all Muslim. So it'll be interesting to watch this, but I think it's important to watch it and to understand what's going on And also this recent claim that the generals have uh, and the prime minister, I guess, of Sudan are working on some arrangement after the coup and after he was placed in prison. It feels like suddenly everything is at play in the Horn of Africa, which raises the question about what could draw us into this conflict, which we're saying is taking place in Ethiopia. But it feels like the region is in a state of upheaval generally. What could draw the United States further into this conflict? And I mean, in a more physical way.
2: Well, I think I think it's going to be very difficult to think about the United States becoming uh, an active participant or taking on a kind of more kinetic role on the ground. I think that you know, we've seen some of the debates that have emerged in the past few years related to U.S. involvement in the Sahel region, which is a you know neighboring region of Africa where there has been this kind of similar upheaval but related to terrorism and the proliferation of terror groups in the region some associated and affiliated with ISIS and al-Qaeda and and some not some you know very much kind of grassroots offshoots and we've seen the US and european primarily french involvement essentially keeping boots largely off the ground and pursuing a kind of drone campaign in those areas, not unlike what the United States has done in Somalia for the better part of the last you know, 15 years there. Increasingly, Kenya has become a strong counterterrorism partner for the United States against the Shabab in, in Somalia, kind of displacing the role that, that that Ethiopia once played. So I think that you know Washington is is obviously got commercial interests. It's got security interests in the region, but I think that just given the debates that we've seen, uh, which really you know started under the Trump administration, you know when when Trump kind of had this knee jerk response when when four U.S. soldiers were killed in Niger, asking you know what what are we even doing in Africa? Why do we have you know any kind of boots on the ground, let alone you know sort of small number of highly specialized special forces operators? I think that you know, Biden likely harbors a lot of those same concerns with respect to the deployment of US forces in Africa. And I think that Africans are counting on that. I mean, Africans watched very closely the US withdrawal from Afghanistan. And I think that that has also, you know, emboldened some of the moves that we've seen. If you're you're thinking that Washington and the US has been kind of retrenching from these kind of military entanglements, It predates the Afghanistan withdrawal, you know, and it was a feature of of the Trump administration. So I think I think all of these things, you know, are manifesting themselves only now in places like East Africa, where we are going to have to decide how uh, we get involved and what our appetite is for kinetic action in a part of the world, you know, that's seven and a half thousand miles away. You know, obviously, uh, I think it's a highly strategic area. It's contested by many other countries in the world. International shipping, oil shipping, all pass along this region. But to make that argument in a kind of domestic U.S. political context today, still, I think remains you know hard to do for the American public. And so, I think that you're going to continue to see Biden limiting his footprint in this area there was a uh, an op-ed written recently by uh, admiral Stavridis Jim Stavridis former NATO supreme allied commander essentially putting out there for the very first time you know should we be deploying some kind of peacekeeping operation drawing parallels to the breakup of Yugoslavia and the US EU UN peacekeeping efforts there to try to hold the country together and limit the civilian casualties. And I can tell you that the response from African circles on that proposal was great concern. Um, I think that especially in a place like Ethiopia, uh, we didn't mention it, but Ethiopia is the only African country not to be colonized, right? And they're, they're extremely proud of that history and also very guarded of anything that looks like a kind of neo-colonial effort. And certainly the deployment of any kind of peacekeeping operation, whether it was UN AU or anything related to, the, to to having U.S. support, I think would be met with a great deal of suspicion and even hostility on the ground. And so I think I think it's hard to imagine the U.S. adopting uh, anything more than a kind of arms length or indirect support to any kind of effort on the ground that would, you know, that would seek to intervene. I mean, and that's a sad commentary given. You know, given the legacy of Rwanda, given the legacy of Darfur, you know, these are policy decisions uh, that continue to haunt not just our foreign policy, but the sort of the moral consciousness of our country. You know, and certainly if you talk to President Bush, which I had the chance to do a couple of years ago about Darfur, you know, it still very much haunts his memory uh, that we were not able to do more as a country, but also recognize the, the real limitations of the projection of U.S. power in places that far away where we don't have a history and we, where we don't have a kind of first order security interest. So I'm a little bit pessimistic in response to your question about uh, what it is, you know, what's the trigger going to be to, to draw us in. Sadly, I'm not even sure that genocide is going to be the thing that does it.
1: Well, I suppose the other interest that we and all the other countries are going to have going forward in the future is our technologies and transportation shift. It's also a transportation hub for the rare minerals that we're all depending on now for batteries and the like. Um, and that may be part of what China's interest is in that region. Yvette, I know you had a couple of questions that you wanted to ask.
0: Yeah, just one last one. Cameron, I I just kind of want to thank you for the spectacular background that you packed in. Um, you've educated all of our listeners just so thoroughly in a brief period of time. And that leads to my question about how people can get into this kind of career field. One of our audiences and one of our missions is to bring people into national security. And obviously being an Intel expert is an important role. And I myself benefited from the spectacular work that your fellow analysts did at the agency when I was working on atrocities prevention and response at the Pentagon. And so I would love for you to share your pearls of wisdom with whoever out there is listening and wants to sound as knowledgeable and expert as you are. What advice would you give?
2: Well, I, you know, for me, it was to learn a region and to, to get deeply involved in a region of the world that you're passionate about you're not always going to have the opportunity to leave your desk in Washington. And frankly, the more expert you become in Washington on these issues, the less likely you are that they're going to let you leave your desk. So uh, I always tell people to, to, to get out there in the field and, and spend as much time in the field as you can early in your career and really come back with, you know, not just an admiration and a love, but a respect. I mean, uh, I've worked on Africa, my entire professional career, which is, has you know traditionally not been a kind of front burner national security issue. And the colleagues of mine who work on it with me, I think all share a passion for that, for that region and, and share a passion, knowing full well that it's not going to be the, you know, it's not going to be the issue that that necessarily gets you promoted or that gets you fast tracked for high office. But spending time in the region, falling in love with with these places and these people, you know, if you're going to make a career of it, then you have to enjoy it. So that's always my first piece of advice. As I've kind of grown up in my career, I would say the second piece of advice is, is try to develop a functional expertise as well. You know, having a regional and a functional expertise, I think, really makes... Make someone a kind of double threat in the kind of bureaucratic landscape, um, and so whether you know it's atrocity prevention or whether it's legal reform or uh, democratic assistance or you know whatever whatever it is that you that you feel passionate about, I think having a kind of regional context and a functional context in the kind of Washington policy landscape whether it's inside or outside of government I think is a is a very effective combination of of skills to have that will make you both marketable early in your career and give your career legs and longevity.
1: All right, well that is a wonderful advice to some of our young listeners. Uh, many of whom I think would like to develop a functional expertise in some region and I would commend to them I don't know if you would agree Cameron that Ethiopia is a surprise for those of you who have in your mind a picture of Africa. If you haven't seen any photographs of the castles of Gondor, Ethiopia, the Faisal Gebi castles are nothing short of spectacular. The wall paintings and, and the caves are a surprise. Again, for those of you who don't really haven't really had a chance to look at some of Ethiopia's more beautiful features, you really should. It's not just supermodels and marathon runners. And we're really glad that you had this expertise. So I guess I can say to you in Amhara, we're glad you came, or as they say, they even use the Italian, right? Ciao. We're glad that you're here. And we hope that as things develop, you will consider seriously coming back and talking to us once again. We're glad you had the knowledge.
2: Thanks for inviting me.
1: And thank you all for listening. The Standing
0: Committee on Law and National Security will keep bringing you national security law and policy and news items every week. So go ahead and hit that subscribe button on your app of choice.
1: If you have topics that you want us to cover or feedback you'd like to give us, you can find us on Twitter at ABA NatSec. We'll still be here when Jack Dorsey is gone. You can also send us an email at nationalsecurity@americanbar.org. And don't forget that we're all here in our individual capacity and not on behalf of any agency or firm. We'll see you next week.